Well, hello there, wonderful teachers. I want to invite you to an event we're doing this summer. It's in Cincinnati, Ohio, so you have to be able to make it there, but it might be worth traveling for if you're able to. It's happening on July 20th and 21st, so that's over a weekend, and it's going to be the best two days for teachers. We're going to have a ton of fun. We're going to learn a lot about pedagogy and creative teaching and business. We have two fabulous guest speakers and we're even going to finish with an optional Kaylee. That's an Irish dancing party. So I hope you'll be able to join me. Just go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo that's dot com slash t-u-r-b-o 24 the numbers two four. I hope you'll check it out view all the details there and I hope to see you in Cincinnati in July. On with the episode. Vibrant, vibrant, vibrant music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music teachers. You're listening to episode eight of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and in this episode, I'm answering questions from teachers about makeup lessons, pentascales, goals, and recordings. Welcome to another episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. If this is the first episode you're listening to, then welcome. It's great to have you here. And I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the first seven. This episode in particular is a little bit different. Today I'm going to be answering some questions from Vibrant Music Teaching members that they've submitted to me. So it's going to be covering a broad breadth of topics and it should be really interesting to dive into these different topics that are important and are on the minds of various Vibrant Music Teaching members. But the other episodes are more focused on particular topics at a time, so do go back and listen to those when you get a chance. So the first question I have submitted today is from Laurel in South Carolina. And she said, I make videos and audio recordings for some students to help them prepare what to practice at home. This is helpful for my young students or struggling students with non-musical parents. The file size can be quite large, even for short recordings. So I'm unable to email or text them. I've been trying different methods of sending the recordings Facebook Messenger works, but not everyone uses Facebook. Send Anywhere works, but there is a 48-hour expiration on those. And I'm wondering if anyone can recommend the best option. Private YouTube upload or another software, perhaps. It would be awesome to find one solution that can work for all, that has a large size limit and no expiration. Thanks so much for this question, Laurel. This has actually come up a few times recently in the Facebook group and around the place because teachers, members of VMT are starting the Practice Pro course. And in that course, I recommend having students record their own practice and doing recordings and lessons and things like that. And whether it's audio or video, the file sizes can be quite large, as you mentioned here, Laurel. So audio are a little bit smaller but still if you have a lot of them or they're for long periods of time they're still going to be a bit restricted in how you can send them. So the absolute easiest way to deal with this for video is to upload to YouTube like you've said there. However I don't suggest you use the private option. That is extremely cumbersome and it comes with all sorts of problems. The way it's supposed to work is that you upload it and you set it to private and you tell Google slash YouTube 
which email address, which account, which person can watch this video. But the problem is they're often logged into a different account and then it stops them watching it. And, you know, parents are busy. They're going to be doing lots of other things and they're just going to give up if it's that hard. So that's not what I'd recommend. What I'd recommend is that you upload it and set it to be unlisted. Okay, what that setting means, there's three options, by the way, when you upload to YouTube. So you create a YouTube account and then you can upload videos. You can have public ones. Those are the ones that you watch all the time, I'm sure, on YouTube, the dogs and the cats and the lessons and the everything else that's on YouTube that you should see in search and in recommended videos and that kind of stuff. Then there's private, which I've mentioned I don't recommend. And then there's unlisted. So unlisted means that it's not private. Anyone with a link can get there, but it's not going to show in search. So if someone searches even for the exact title of your video in YouTube, it's not going to show up. So it's not completely public either. They need the actual link, which effectively makes it private. Now, if you had something that's sensitive information, if it's a video of a student that you're not allowed to share publicly, absolutely do not use this option. But if it's just that you don't particularly want to show anyone else because it's only relevant to this student, but it's not a major problem if someone else sees it, uploading to YouTube and setting it to unlisted is the easiest and freest option out there. And nobody's going to watch it. Honestly, there's really no problem unless, like I say, you have a privacy issue, like you're, it has a student in it and you're not allowed to show them. But if it's just a case of you not really wanting other students to see it for free, they won't, okay? So unless it's a privacy problem or the other issue I would see sometimes is if you are having someone pay specifically for that video, then it's no good. So if I'm doing videos for courses for VMT, I wouldn't upload those to YouTube because that's not safe enough for that. But if it's just a bonus for your current students, absolutely go with that option. It is the simplest thing. If you really don't want to do that for some reason, there are options like Practicia and Seesaw, all these kind of platforms, but they're all going to come with a cost or they're going to require you to download an app or all of these different things. And if all you want to do is send videos, YouTube Unlisted is the way to go with that. Hope that helps you with that, Laurel. So my next question today is from Carolyn in Wyoming. She said, just curious as to how you introduce pentascales to older students. I use the stair steps from your library with my younger students, which I love, but the older ones feel it's a little childish. Do you discuss whole steps and half steps or just teach by rote? Do you discuss major and minor sounds? Thanks so much for your question there, Carolyn. I really appreciate it. So pentascales I only use with younger students. So the question, how do I introduce pentascales to older students, comes with the answer, I don't. I go straight to regular scales. The main point of pentascales for me, well, there are several points. One is to give students the routine of practicing something that is similar to scales and get them used to playing these kind of patterns that they're not reading. Another is to get them moving all over the piano. And the main reason I introduce pentascales with younger students is to get them to transpose into various different keys. Now, for older students, I don't feel it's all that necessary to really teach them these scales to have them do that. 
They can figure it out. Their ear is a little bit more developed and they don't need to have those patterns underhand and they can their fingers can move around more easily, right? So it doesn't take that much practice, technical practice, to get used to the pentascales before they can do that. And they're perfectly able for regular scales pretty early on. So pentascales, if I did the full set the way I do it with young students, it would only delay that process of getting to one octave scales, and that would be detrimental in my opinion. So that's why I don't do that. Now, in terms of how I actually teach pentascales when I am teaching them, which is with younger students, say, let's say, under sevens, would I talk about whole steps and half steps? In Ireland, that would be tones and semitones. Um, no. Sometimes, depending on the circumstance, if a student is having particular trouble or I just know that they're going to latch on to that. But in general, no, not really. Do I talk about major and minor sounds? Absolutely. That's a huge benefit of doing these scales. So I'll have them learn the pentascales basically by listening. And we do lots of singing with them. So we'll be singing do, re, mi, fa, so, and back down, obviously. And by through that process of singing along with them, they'll notice when they go to D major from C and the F, which they're playing, doesn't sound like me, does it? It doesn't sound like the third note should sound. So how can we fix that? And they'll explore and they'll find the black keys themselves. And through this process, it means that they can practice these at home easily without my help because they're used to finding where their mistakes are. It's waking up their ears. It's doing all this kind of stuff. So that's how I approach teaching pentascales. And then we talk about dropping the third down and the difference that makes in the sound. And again, always transposing different songs to these folk songs, as well as reading songs that they're learning as well in their books. Okay, I hope that answer is useful, Carolyn, but feel free to follow up with um, other questions in the VMT Clubhouse. So, next question is from Dana in Portland. Hi, Dana. Thanks for the question. She said, what do you do differently when scheduling adult students, especially in regards to makeup lessons? My only makeup lessons are group class offerings, but that isn't going to work for my adult students, especially as one comes during the day and the two come on different evenings. So Dana, my answer to this question is somewhat similar somehow to the answer to the question about pentascales. What do I do differently with makeup lessons with adult students? I don't do them, but I don't do them with any students. So we differ there. I see you're doing them as groups in general. So with adult students and with all my students, I am not doing makeup lessons at all. I do not call anything a makeup lesson No, 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 no. Uh, That's kind of how I feel about makeup lessons. I'm going to give my thoughts in more depth on makeup lessons in in an upcoming episode, so I won't go on and on about my philosophy on this here. But basically, my view is that makeup lessons in general send the wrong message. They send the message that the student or the parent is entitled to that amount of time from your week. And if they don't receive it for whatever reason, they are entitled to some compensation for that, whatever the compensation is. And I think that is inaccurate. They are not entitled to anything. What they are entitled to is that spot in your schedule which you have agreed together. If you can't make 11am on Tuesdays and that's when they've scheduled, then absolutely you should do something about that situation. But if you are still reserving that for them and they cannot make it, That is not your fault. 
and they are not guaranteed 45 minutes out of your week. That is not what they signed up for. They signed up for 11am on Tuesdays. So that's my view on makeup lessons in general across the board. So that I don't love things like offering a group class as a way to make up for lessons. I love the idea of offering group classes as bonuses, as part of being in your studio. And I think that's essentially what a lot of teachers who are offering this as a makeup lesson alternative are doing. It's just a bonus for being in their studio. It might be different with you, Dana, but I know a lot of teachers who do this, they're actually offering those group lessons to their whole studio. I don't know if that's the case with you, but a lot of teachers are doing that. And then they're saying to parents, okay, you can consider this as a makeup if you like. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. How is it a makeup if everyone can attend? It's just part of being in your studio. And that's awesome. That's great. It's a wonderful bonus. So that's how I see it in terms of alternatives to makeup lessons and all of this. I think just cut them out completely and make being in your studio about more than that weekly lesson. But that weekly lesson is reserved for the student. So I wouldn't do anything differently with adults or with anyone else. I would just reinforce that you are saving that time for them every single week. They also get blah de blah de blah whatever else they get. They also get access to your lending library or the opportunity to participate in recitals or group lessons. And all of that stuff is part of your studio package. And yeah, makeup lessons don't even enter into the equation then. I hope that's useful Dana, I know it's a little bit different than what you're doing already, but that's kind of how I see makeup lessons overall and how I frame them within all the business communications, everything like that. Okay, so my next question is from Karina in Germany. She said, I listened to your last podcast episode about lesson planning and got a question about that issue. How do you pick literature for students that finish their method books? There is such a variety and I always find myself struggling with narrowing down choices. Then I play three or four pieces and the student picks one. But while planning for that, I often feel lost and helpless. These are really hard decisions and I'm often feeling unsure. Okay, this is certainly something that I struggled with in the beginning, Karina. So hopefully I can give you some tips and help you out here. It is tricky, especially if students are not heading through exams. And I know that's not a big thing in Germany anyway, but it's often a bit of a cop out when we are in an exam system because they just, it gives you that natural structure to follow. But without that system, you certainly can design something that makes sense and a progression that makes sense for your students. And that's really a big part of our job beyond the late beginner, early intermediate stage. Once we start getting intermediate and above students, a big part of what we are doing is facilitating that learning journey taking them through repertoire that makes sense, allowing them to discover new genres, new areas that they might not have discovered on their own, and of course helping them to learn it. But in a lot of cases, a big part of what we're doing is actually just deciding what they'll learn. Now, you shouldn't be doing this on your own. And I love that you're already playing pieces for your student to choose from. However, you seem to be playing one like so three or four pieces and then they pick one and then you probably repeat that process what makes it a whole lot easier is if you can tap into a book that they're going to like because it can just give them so much more material to work with it means you don't have to do this process again and again and you can still do this choosing from three or four pieces for something special or for their big project pieces so I would have layers of repertoire with all my students, especially at this kind of level. 
We would have easy pieces that they can read very quickly and easily and might even be sight reading level. Then we'd have medium pieces and that would be the bulk of their repertoire. So, you know, it would be quote unquote at their level. And then they'd usually have one big project piece on two. With different students, this works differently, but that's the basic structure I would be following with most students at like an intermediate and above level. So the first thing to know there is their goals. If they're a student who is determined that they will only ever play pop music, then you're not going to give them a classical book to choose from. If there's someone who wants a whole breadth of things, then it's up to you to provide that as well. So choosing books like this is one of the reasons that I absolutely love having a materials fee and providing everything for my students. Another way to look at that is just that my fees are all inclusive, depending on which way you look at it. But the main thing is that I have a big library, I have a big wall of books, and I get to choose when they get a new book. So before the lesson, I would pick out three or four books that I think this student might jive with, that I think would be their cup of tea, okay? And then I would, at the lesson, play just short excerpts from a few of the pieces from each book. It's enough to give them a flavour. That means that they can choose the book they want, but it still includes a whole variety of things, um, depending on the book, and it gives us a lot of scope to work with. If there ends up being one piece in that book that they hate, then it's not a problem. But I find most students, especially if you're choosing a book that's all by one composer, once they find something they like, they really love it, and they really love working through a whole book of pieces in that style. Coming to pick those big project pieces is harder because you do need to allow students to really hear them properly to commit to something that big. So if you're giving a student three or four bigger pieces to choose from that are going to take them, say, a couple of months or maybe even more than that to learn, then I would send them a YouTube playlist. Just put together a playlist of the three or four pieces that they can choose from or more if you like and send it to them and say, Listen, it's up to you. You watch this during the week. Normally at that level, they'll be like a teenage student anyway, so they're perfectly capable of doing this for themselves. Have them watch the YouTube playlist slash listen to it during the week and text me or email me when you've decided. And then I can prepare that music for them for the next lesson. I can get the sheet music ready and we can start on it. And they're so much more invested because they've picked it out. These types of pieces can come from other places, like it can just be something that your student mentions. And I certainly reinforce to my teenage students regularly that they're welcome to come with me, come to me rather, with any special requests, anything that in particular that that they'd like to learn. And I try to pick up on stuff that they mention as well along the way. Like I had a student last year who just happened to mention to me, she's a YouTube convert, okay? So she came to me after learning from YouTube and deciding that, deciding completely for herself that this wasn't the way to learn piano and that she needed a professional to help her out. So she came to me as a YouTube musician, as it were, and she'd learned guitar that way. And she still sometimes learns piano pieces from YouTube and that's totally fine with me. So she was telling me that she had learned a bit of Claire de Lune from YouTube I know, such a painful process, I'm sure. But anyway, so she had learned that and she was playing it for her mum's something or other, her mum's birthday or something like that that was on because it was her mum's favourite piece. So, of course, mental note, at the time she was working on lots of other stuff as well, so I didn't do anything then, but a month or so later I said, listen, you're finished your exam, 
I thought we might start to tackle the actual Claire de Lune from the notation. It's a bit above your level, but I think you could do it. And it would mean a ton, wouldn't it? And she was, her face just lit up. So if you can notice little mentions like that, great. Otherwise, you select a few pieces, yes, but send them that YouTube playlist so that they can listen to them at their leisure. And also ask them to bring you requests. Put it back on them. Especially if they're a teenager or an adult or whatever. It's not all on you. They need to tell you what kind of music they like and want to learn because they're learning piano for fun. It's a hobby. They need to be learning stuff they like and they need to tell you what they like so that you can help them and facilitate them learning the music that they enjoy. I hope that helps, Karina. Get back to me with any follow-up questions on that one as well. Now, my final question today is possibly the biggest one. It's from Teresa, who's in Ontario in Canada. She said, what type of processes have you found to be effective helping students prepare their goals for the term and or year? How might you stretch their goals beyond what they think they can achieve? So big question, because goals are always a big topic. But I think it fits in kind of alongside Karina's. So I set goals with my students, especially older students at the start of each semester, um, heading into New Year's and those kinds of times. And when we do that, it's a collaborative process. So I'm getting students to set their own goals with some guidance from me. So the first stage of helping them prepare their goals or helping them to push themselves further, all that kind of stuff, is that when they are setting their goals, I'm helping them to figure out what those goals should actually be. And if they're saying, well, I want to finish three pieces because they can't understand the length of time that is in a whole year, That does happen. And I try to look back with them and see how many pieces did we finish last year? Okay, so do you think you could do a little bit more than three? (laughs) Those kinds of questions can help guide them along the way. Now, in terms of keeping them on track with those goals, it's just a matter of reminding them what they are for me. You know, during the lesson saying, okay, where are we in relation to our goals? Do you want to adjust any of your goals? Do you want to change them? They're always movable movable goalposts, as it were. So I'm not forcing them to stick to whatever they came up with. It's more about the process and the understanding of how we set goals and how we work through and all that kind of stuff, just so that they can see where they are and understand their own progress and their own trajectory. Goal setting is another of those big topics that I'm sure I'll do a full in-depth episode on. But I hope for now, Teresa, that that gives you an idea of the process I'm working through and how I'm allowing them to move the goals around and to set them based on some feedback from me and also from themselves and from their experiences as they work through the goals each year. Thanks so much to everyone who submitted questions, all the members who submitted questions. It was absolutely fantastic to dive into those topics and I hope it was useful for all of you listening, not just those who submitted the questions in advance. Before you go, I wanted to tell you about something special that's coming up this week. In fact, as this episode is released, it's going to be starting in two days. So you'll have to hop on this wagon pretty quick. I have a special celebration week coming up. So it's starting on Wednesday. That's Wednesday, the 12th of September. And all week, for a whole week, I'm going to be having daily workshops on my Facebook page. So that's the Colourful Keys page on Facebook. And I'm going to do live sessions there every day. It's seven days and it's seven ways to gamify your teaching. So seven different gamification type workshops. 
every single day, I'm also going to be giving away a prize. So to get in on the prizes, it's seven different prizes, you're going to have to comment on the video before the next video goes live. So you'll have around about 24 hours, depending on the time frame between the videos, to get your comment in. This is all leading up to the first birthday of the Vibrant Music Teaching site, which is on the 18th. So this is the seven days leading up to the 18th. And on the 18th, I'm going to give away a free annual membership huge prize for anyone who has submitted for any of the other prizes, right? So it's going to be taken from the whole week and one person will win. That's open to VMT members and non-members. So if you're already a member, you'll get a, a year for free of your membership. And if you're not a member, you'll become a member and get the year for free. Either way, that's the same prize. And then I have super fun spot prizes every single day, really fun surprises planned along the way too. So if you want to get the notifications by email as I go live, you can go to vibrantmusicteaching.com slash birthday to subscribe to those emails and you'll get notified a few minutes before I go live so you can catch the videos as they go live. They're going to be at different times every single day, so it's going to be hard to track if you want to do it manually. It's much better to subscribe to the emails. The reason that they're at different times every day, of course, is to be fair to multiple time zones, basically, and also fit in with my own teaching schedule. So I hope lots of you will jump in for this fun bonus week. It should be a really great way to celebrate the Vibrant Music Teaching first birthday, and I hope lots of you will join me. That's it for today. I hope you got a lot out of these questions and answers, and that I'll see you for the first birthday celebrations. Bye for now. If you want to get your questions answered on the podcast and also in live office hours every single month, then you need to become a Vibrant Music Teaching member. Go to vmt.ninja to sign up and you can hop on the next office hour call with me and get some one-on-one -on -one personalized support. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I hope you loved it and I wanted to pop on here one more time to remind you about our event. It's happening in Cincinnati this July and you can get all the details at vibrantmusicteaching.com slash turbo. See you there.